and uh, we're calling this whole series a crash course in Christianity as we look at some of the basic foundational elements of our faith in Christ. If you have your Bibles this morning, you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 uh, towards the second half of the of the uh, uh, chapters where we'll be in just a moment. Uh, we're going to pray as we get into the word. I do want to uh, let you know as a church family of some sad news that our sister Willa Reich passed away this past Friday. Uh, you know that she had a terrible fall a couple of weeks ago. And uh, so Willa has gone to be with the Lord. I encourage you to keep uh, her family in your prayers, as particularly her husband, Fred, who is grieving heavily at this time, as well as their extended family. So let's uh, keep the, the Reich family in our prayers. We'll let you know more when we know about a service and things like that. But for now, let's go to the Lord together. Father, we come today to a God who calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to grieve or weep with those who weep. And so, Father, today we pray for the Reich family. Father, we pray that you would comfort them through your Holy Spirit in a supernatural way. Lord, we lift up our brother Fred before you. Lord, we pray that you would comfort him in his loss. And, uh, and yet, Father, at the same time, we rejoice because we know that our sister has found her reward with you. And so we praise, uh, praise you for that and commend her to you, asking for your blessing to surround her family that is left behind. Bless us this morning, Father, as we enter into your word, Lord, that you would guide our hearts, our thoughts, as we spend time in this book of Ephesians. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, if you were to attend a service in the small Roman Catholic church called Sanct Maria in Carinthia, Austria, you might find that the pastor had to pause in the middle of the service for an unusual reason because there's a road that runs through the middle of the church. And so while the pastor preaches his sermon in the sanctuary on the east side of a one-lane road, the churchgoers sit in a building on the opposite side of the road. As early as 1443, a wayside shrine was built at this point on the former Roman road. And at the time, the road was a very important trade route from Venice to Salzburg. And the shrine gave travelers a place to stop and rest and pray. In 1754, that roadside shrine was replaced by a chapel. And since there was not much space between the road and the slope, a chapel was built with a sanctuary about six feet above the road. And the worshipers would gather on the road in the front of the church building. Well, eventually, somebody felt sorry for those pilgrims who often had to stand in front of the church in the rain during the service, and so a two-story structure was built on the opposite side of the road, about 15 feet from the chapel. And in that building, there are two rooms with chairs and benches, and that building also has an open side that faces the road and the chapel across the road. And that chapel has an open side, and so both buildings can see and hear one another in two separate buildings. The priest in one, the congregants in the other, and if a vehicle happens to come by, everything has to stop until things are taken care of. Well, that church building in Austria is unique because it is divided physically. But the sad fact is that many churches are divided spiritually. I want you to remember Jesus' prayer to the Father. 
regarding his disciples. It's recorded in John 17, 21. And one part of it, Jesus says these words, that they all may be one. That's us. So that the world may believe that you, Father, have sent me, says Jesus. Well, this morning we come to another section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians that focuses on the how part of living out our life as Christ followers. Remember that the first three chapters or so of Ephesians all focused on the foundations of how to be a part of God's kingdom. And the second half of the letter is the more practical concerns of what it looks like to live as kingdom people. In this section, we're going to find that Paul uses three examples to emphasize the importance of Christ-centered relationships. And each of these examples could be a sermon in and of itself. But this morning, we are focusing on a crash course, a mini course, if you will, in Christ-centered relationships. So we'll be looking at, instead of those three lengthy examples that Paul uses, we're going to look at three distinct marks of quality relationships that are illustrated by Paul's examples here in chapter 5 and 6. Paul's examples of, of marriage, of parenting, and the master-servant dynamic that was so prevalent in the first century. And our goal in this crash course will be to pursue proper relationships within the church so that we do not present the picture of a house or a church divided to the world around us. And so as we transition from last week's message in the first part of chapter 5, we focused on, if you remember, on how Christ-like behaviors become a reality in our life as we put off our old self and put on our new self. Paul reminded us that that process is not one of merely just doing better or just living better, but of being shaped and led by God's Holy Spirit in our lives. And as God's Spirit functions more and more in our life, our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions begin to be more Christ-like, including our relationships with one another, which is our focus this morning. So let's begin by reading, we're going to call this kind of the hinge passage that connects the Christ-like living we talked about last week with Christ-centered relationships that we'll look at this morning. So Ephesians 5, verses 20 and 21, the words are on the screen. Let's read this together. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen. The word of God. And so here Paul says that one evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is this idea that we are always giving thanks to God the Father for what? Everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's, that's quite a calling, isn't it? Think about applying that to yourself for just a moment. Are you the kind of person that focuses on what is wrong in your life or what is right? Do we regularly complain about our problems and our issues and our annoyances or is our focus more on consistently giving thanks to God for what he has done, what he is doing, and what he promises he will do into the future? 
You see, when we live in consistent thankfulness, we allow God's spirit free reign, which leads to the next evidence of the spirit in our life, and it is the word submission. Because Christians who are filled with the spirit regularly listen to one another and serve one another and help one another, we find that submission is critical. To submit carries the idea of voluntarily and willingly giving up our rights. That doesn't float real well in our culture today, right? We Americans love our rights, and we love to shout about our rights and fight for our rights and stand up for our rights. And yet, as Christ followers, we're called to be people of submission. What does that look like? Look at verse 21 again. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so our concept of submission must come from the understanding of a relationship between Christ and his church. Christ loves the church and the church submits to him. And our motive for all of this is Jesus Christ himself. And so this brings us to what we're calling our first important relationship mark. Our first important relationship mark, mutual submission. We're going to look at this idea of submission from a number of different angles. And the first one is mutual submission. The apostle could have used any number of different types of relationships to illustrate this principle in action. But in our passage, Paul chooses three common relationships where there is an obvious superior and inferior position. To an ancient audience, mutual submission in the wife-husband or child-parent or servant-master relationship might have seemed revolutionary and went against the grain of popular culture. In fact, we could say the same of our own culture today. But Paul points to Jesus's relationship with the church as the model for the relationships we are to have with each other. When Jesus humbled himself and came to earth as a bond servant, he illustrated that there is not a superior, inferior division in his kingdom. You see, Jesus never forced anyone to submit to him. But in his humility and love and kindness, people chose to submit to him. And in a similar way, no one ever forced Jesus to love them. Jesus freely chooses to extend his love to us. And so, friends, we must have the same dynamic in our relationships with one another. In our freedom, we are to offer submission that expresses itself within the roles that we've been assigned in our life, whether as a spouse, a parent, a child, an employee, a leader, a citizen, or any number of other relationships that we might find ourselves to be a part of. This mutual submission is integral, though, for the body of Christ so that we might carry out the purposes of God. And brothers and sisters, it is difficult, no, it is impossible to carry out God's purposes for us if we do not have an outward focus of mutual submission in our lives. 
Now, the original language word that is translated submit is actually a, a military term. And it means to arrange in order under. As a person subjects themselves under the authority of someone with a, a higher rank. And so in our English Bibles, it's interpreted with various words like subordinate or obey or subject to or submit. And while the word could be used to describe compulsion or forced submission against one's will, that is certainly not the context here. If Jesus is our model, then we see that this kind of submission is strictly voluntary. It's by choice. Jesus chose to lay down his life for us. He prayed, not my will, Father, but thy will be done. It's kind of like driving your car. One of the most important rules of the road when you're learning to drive is the whole thing about yielding the right of way. We take it for granted perhaps as seasoned drivers, but for a relatively new driver, it takes a lot of, a lot of thought. Who gets to go first at a four-way stop? How do I navigate that yield sign? What about one of those roundabouts that have become so popular here in recent years? Last week, we had a pretty major power outage in the, in the, in the community here. And we were out of power for almost a whole day. And so as I was driving around town in our neighborhood, around Coburg and up uh, down to Coburg Road and Harlow Road in that area, I was amazed by the amount of people that just kind of blew through intersections. Because the lights were out, right? So I can go as fast as I want. I don't have to stop. It's all about me. I'll just cruise on through. There was no sense of submission. And I saw a number of near accidents. And I saw two accidents that actually took place. When we think about submission, it's the opposite of what we'll call the Frank Sinatra syndrome. You know what that is, right? I did it my way. I did it my way. You see, healthy relationships require some yielding some submission, some give and take. And whether it's a friendship or a committee meeting or a marriage or a relationship with another family member, all relationships require healthy, mutual submission. The problem is our natural, sinful inclination is one of, not submission, but self-centeredness. It's all about me. But the good news is, when we give our life to Christ, we receive his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit is with us. And he helps us to do what does not come naturally to us. What we cannot do on our own. And that is to be other-centered. Paul tells us that we submit out of a reverence Christ. Think about that for a moment. Putting others first is actually a form of worship. It's as much a form of worship as singing a song together in the assembly or praying. Putting others first. When we put another person first, that, friends, is when we are most like Jesus. We know that our Lord stepped out of the glories of heaven to come and to serve. To serve, not be served. 
to offer his life as a ransom for many. And so if Jesus submits for us, how can we not submit for one another? So friends, may we pursue the relationship mark of mutual submission together as the family of God, as we represent Christ in this community. Well, now we get to the more contentious part of this passage as we consider a second relationship mark, and that is voluntary submission. Voluntary submission. Paul uses the illustration of marriage to show how voluntary submission is integral in the life of the church. So let's read the next couple of verses together on the screen again, verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Amen. The word of God. You know, it's amazing to me how in the many years that I've been a pastor that I've seen many men misuse this particular passage of scripture to exert control over their wives when these same husbands conveniently gloss over their own responsibilities that are listed in verses 25 through 33, which we'll get together and uh, get to in just a moment. Uh, by the way, maybe it's a bit indicative of our male ego that God uses just three verses for the ladies, but it takes nine verses to outline what it takes for the guys. I've never seen a wife having trouble voluntarily submitting to her husband when that same husband is sacrificially loving her the way that Christ loves the church. How does Christ love the church? He died for it. Jesus died for us, as it says in, in Romans chapter 5, while we were yet sinners. In the midst of our mess, he died for us. In other words, Jesus loves us unconditionally. And he intercedes for us before the Father in heaven. Jesus feeds and cares for us, his sheep, with every good gift from heaven above. He prepares a place for us in glory. He sends a comforter to be with us until then. And he is with us. How can we not want to voluntarily submit to his plans, to his purposes for our life? What is it that invades our hearts and minds and insists that things have to be done our way, according to our plans and our purposes, whether it's in the home or in the church or anywhere else we might be? Well, it's when we lose sight of these truths about Jesus as Jesus' followers. And we focus on our own personal felt needs and desires that we often get off track. What about my feelings? If they would just do this, then everything would be okay. Voluntary submission is an integral part of our life. But it is not a harsh command. The fact is, you wives, when you voluntarily submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord, you best set up your husband to be the man of God that God called him to be. 
You allow him to be fully responsible to lead as a servant leader in the same way that Jesus loves and leads and serves the church. And friends, when we, brothers and sisters, voluntarily submit to one another and stop focusing on being fed, on our own personal preferences and priorities for the local church, that is when we best set one another up to be the followers of Christ that we are called to be. I like what author Beth Moore says about this passage in, in relation to marriage. She writes to wives and she says, uh, she says, a submission is ducking so that God can hit your husband. <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes we just need to get out of the way of God and allow him to work some things out. You see, friends, our submission, our mutual submission, our voluntary submission is a beautiful act of faith as we trust God to work through us to develop our marriages, our relationships with our families and our friends, our relationships within the church, all so that we might be more like Christ. Now, not everybody here is married, but everybody here knows somebody who's married. And when you think about marriage at its best, when husbands and wives are loving one another as an act of obedience, and when there's mutual submission and voluntary submission being exercised, you begin to see the very main point of this passage, which leads us to our third important relationship mark. Number three, we are to pursue sacrificial submission. Sacrificial submission. submission. I mentioned earlier that today's passage starts a, a, a whole series of instructions in various relationships that include Christian to Christian, husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and servants. Paul's <clears throat> instructions to the people in ancient Ephesus can carry a lot of baggage in our modern era. Too often these scriptures have been used by domineering men to keep women under control or by possessive leaders in various settings, including the church, to maintain their position and power and control. But really, these scriptures have nothing to do with control and everything to do with oneness, with unity, with the power of submission, especially sacrificial submission, whether it's in the marriage relationship or any other relationship that we find ourselves in. Let's read this next section together, verses 25 through 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul says this is all about the church. We still apply it to our marriage relationships. We're not off the hook, but it's all about the church. Sacrificial submission points us to the oneness of Christ and his bride, the church. I mentioned earlier that Christ Jesus is a servant leader. And we see that clearly here in verses 25 and 26. We could call this the very meat of the section. How are husbands to love their wives? In the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. You see the self-sacrifice there, the sacrificial submission? Even though this passage seems to be all about marriage, Paul says what I'm really talking about is this amazing relationship that Christ has with his church. To continue to paraphrase Paul, it's like he's saying, when you see a marriage done God's way, when a husband truly practices loving actions sacrificially towards his wife, when a wife voluntarily submits her will to her husband, you are reminded of how Christ sacrificially loves the church and how the church at its best voluntarily submits to Christ's leadership in everything. And it is a beautiful thing when it works right. And it works right when we do it God's way and not our way. So I want you to see that we're not talking about control today. Who's in charge? How often do we say, find ourselves saying that? Who's in charge here? I want to see the manager. I want to see the person in charge. I want to get to the bottom of this. That's not a submissive attitude, is it? We're not talking about control. We're talking about the very opposite of control. We're talking about humility and selflessness, and putting others first, all leading to this beautiful unity in our relationships with one another. And who is our role model? Jesus, who always puts us first. So friends, let's try putting some sacrificial submission into our relationships. I want to encourage you to watch for opportunities this week as an act of worship to the one who yielded for you. Look for opportunities to practice sacrificial, voluntary submission. You see, friends, the church is the bride of Christ. I want you to just think about that for a moment. You know, the church is made up of flawed, sinful, broken people. Sometimes I use the illustration, I tell people the, the church is not hall of fame it's a hospital and we're all sick we're all in the process of getting better together through the healing power of jesus christ and the church is not going to be perfect and it's not going to be all that jesus wants it to be in this lifetime as long as broken people keep coming into the church 
And yes, we ought to address the shortcomings and we ought to do whatever we can to correct them, absolutely. But friends, we cannot use the deficiencies within the body of Christ as a reason to ridicule the bride of Christ, to demean the bride of Christ, the church, or as an excuse to not be actively involved in the life of the church, which is the bride of Christ. The flawed people of the church are the very ones that we are called to love and to exercise voluntary and sacrificial submission towards. And so friends, if we really love Jesus, if we really love Jesus, then we will naturally come to love the things he loves. And Jesus deeply loves the church. So may we love the church as much as he does. There's a classic little folk story told about a, a young boy who loved to play marbles. And he would walk through his neighborhood with a pocket full of marbles, his best marbles, hoping to find opponents to play against. And one marble in particular, his special blue marble, had won him many matches. During one walk, he encountered a young girl who was eating a bag of chocolate candy. And though the boy's first love was marbles, he had a weakness for chocolate. So as he stood there interacting with the little girl, his salivary glands and his stomach began to rumble and pretty soon it was uncontrollable and he thought to himself, I got to get my hands on that chocolate that little girl has. And so concocting a plan, he asked the girl, how about I give you all these marbles in my pocket for your chocolate? I'll trade you. The little girl said, that sounds fair to me. So the little boy put his hand in his pocket and he searched for the distinguishing cracks on the surface of his favored blue marble. And once he identified that blue marble, with the tip of his finger, he carefully pushed it to the bottom of his pocket. And then he scooped out the rest of the marbles. And as he handed the marbles to the girl in exchange for the chocolate, the boy thought his plan was a success. And he turned to walk away. As he began to eat the chocolate, he suddenly turned back to the girl and he said, Hey, did you give me all the chocolates? You see, friends, our broken inclination persuades us to posture ourselves in the same deceptive and defiant way as that little boy in the story. We want everything the kingdom of God has to offer. We want to have a secure sense of God's presence. We want all our prayers to be answered. We want to feel close to Jesus. We want to flourish in the riches of God's glory. We want it all. We want all the marbles, right? But we're unwilling to sacrifice everything for it. To submit our will and our way. Many times there is a blue marble in our lives that we seem unwilling to offer up to the control of Jesus. And friends, until we can voluntarily submit ourselves to God's will, to his plan, to his purposes for us personally and together, 
as the family of God, then our participation in God's kingdom will always be limited. Give up your blue marble. Release in submission voluntarily, sacrificially, mutually. And when we do, the glory of God will be revealed. Let's pray together.